Good morning, everyone. If you don't know me, my name is Andy. I've been a member of this church for about 20 years now. I'm married to Katie, who leads worship here at the church, and I have two daughters, Florence and Dora. I've been in primary school education for about 20 years as a teacher and as a leader. And as Bernard alluded to earlier on today, I'll be talking to you about the story of Abraham under that title of minor story, major impact. Although the story of Abraham is a major story, I'll be looking at some of the nuances of that story to bring out the impact that it had. (coughs) If you're taking notes or you're interested in the scriptures that I'll be referring to today, I'll be looking at Genesis 11 and 12 and Genesis 22 and then in Colossians 1 as well. I wonder, what do you depend on? Yes, there's the basics, air for our lungs, food, water, clothes, shelter. But I wonder if it's the catch-up with a friend to talk about what's going on at work or at home. I wonder if it's the box set that you're currently watching on Netflix or the broad bandwidth that your desperate's going to work despite your children on their tablets, your wife on Facebook, <laughs> and you're on the 12th Zoom call of the day, and you're desperate for that connection to work. I wonder, what do you depend on? <coughs> I'm going to take you back in history now, 4,000 years. I wonder if they had the same things to depend on. Probably didn't have Netflix. They've had Google, right, though? (laughs) This group of people 4,000 years ago lived in Mesopotamia, in the Near East, stretched for miles and miles through many different countries. First known civilization in the world. And they depended on things, too. They might have had the research the science, the internet, to tell them what was going on. But they could see with their eyes. And as they observed the crops and the food, as they observed those out on the hunt, as they observed a child being born, as they observed disease in their villages, towns and cities, they started to see and realise that they were not in control. And as time went on, they realised that there were forces at play that they had no control over. If the sun burned too brightly, the the crops would fade. If there wasn't enough water from the sky, they didn't have anything to drink. And so gradually, over time, They began to personalise these forces. They referred to them as gods. There was El, the father god, and Hosag, the mother god of fertility, Sham, the sky god, Baal, the lightning god, 
Yarn, the water god. Nti, the air god. Utu, the sun god. And Ninkasi, the goddess of beer. <laughs> In the ancient manuscripts, you can even find worship songs to this goddess. Ninkasi, may your beer flow like the Tigris and Euphrates. And so these forces were at play. But what did the people do? Well, they offered things up to them. The gods were up there, right? They were here on earth. When they died, they went into the ground. And so they offered up. At first, it was a portion of their crop. Then, some of their livestock. (coughs) And the altar system began to take shape. But there was a problem. If things went well, what did the people do? Well, if I offered this much of my crop, or this many of my livestock, and things have gone well, surely now I need to offer more, because I want the same again. But there's been no rain, no water has come for four months, for six months, for eight months, for ten months, for two years. What am I doing wrong? I need to offer more and more. And so extreme forms of offering began to take place. The prophets of Baal in Canaan would cut themselves before the altar The god Malak, the detestable god, would require an offering of the firstborn. No matter what you did, whether things went well or things went badly, you were left constantly offering more and more. And so over time in the psyche of humanity, there was a deep, deep groaning, a deep, deep anxiety. And it is within that context that we are introduced to Abraham in Genesis chapter 11. Abraham is a 10th generation descendant of Noah on the side of Noah's son Shem. They live in Ur near the Persian Gulf, a port city in Mesopotamia. His father, Terah, is there as well. And in Genesis 11, we read that the family are planning to travel to Canaan. As, as a side, it's interesting because it's not until Genesis 12 that Abraham is called by God to go to Canaan, but yet the family were already planning to do that. I wonder if there are times in your life where you make decisions and you're waiting on God to tell you something Actually, in this case, God steps in and affirms the decision the family had already made. So in that altar system world of always having to give more, Abraham comes on the scene. And the family have started to make a journey up to Turan, which is near the north of Mesopotamia, as they're about to go down to Canaan. But they decide to settle there. 
And it's at the start of chapter 12 that God introduces himself to Abraham. At the time he's referred to as Abraham, but I'm going to read it as Abraham just for ease. So it's Genesis 12, uh, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. A few observations to make. In the context of that time, the gods were up there. They didn't call out to the people down here. But here we have a God that calls out to Abraham. It was about what the people could provide for their God, what they could offer up, how much were they willing to sacrifice. But here we have a God saying that he will bless Abraham, a human being, a God bless a human being. And he says to Abraham to leave his household. Well, for us, when we hear that, we think, yeah, that's great. Grown up, they're going to move out. But this meant something very different. Household, in this regard, was a way of seeing the world. Abraham was to see the world in a different way. In a story about this story, told by the rabbis, they talk about Terah the father. Now, in Joshua 24.2, you can read that Terah was actually an idol worshipper. So Abraham was very much used to that way of being, that idol worshipping way of being. And it says that on the night they had heard from God, he went into his father's house, he took an axe, and he destroyed every one of the idols that were in that house, apart from one. And he put the axe by the idol. The next morning he could hear a commotion. As he went into the room, his father was there, very confused. What has happened, son? What has gone on? Abraham turned to his father and said, well, it's quite obvious. This God has destroyed all the other gods. To which terror replied, that's impossible. I made those gods. A dramatic pause happened. So why do you bow down to worship then? So Abraham set off the call of God, a God that calls out to him to change his way of being, to move out of that process, that way of seeing the world as you could never have or do enough. There was always something else to sacrifice, always something else to do. And he starts on a journey with God. Many years later, and ten chapters later in the story, we're confronted with a story that is hard to read. A story that for some will say, that's why religion should be out 
That's why I'm not interested in any of this. Because in chapter 22, we read these words. Some time later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. A few observations to make there. The word love that is used is the first time the word love as we would know and understand that word is used in the Bible. Another observation is Abraham just does it. There's no back and forth. There's no debate. Abraham is just willing to do it. Now is that because in the culture and the context these things happened? That's what the gods asked of the people. I don't know. Whatever it is, he's willing to do it. But at last moment, as Abraham lifts up the dagger, a divine voice stops him and says, no, take the ram from the thicket and burn that instead. And we see here a God that provides. A God that says, no, you don't have to do it that way. And grace enters the story. Grace, something that we are freely given, yet we don't deserve, but we have it anyway. We can't be like those Mesopotamians, can we? We're not like that. We don't think like that. A few years ago, I was confronted with a very difficult situation at work. A situation, really that I wasn't going to get through in an easy way. It wasn't going to work out well for me. But I went out, bought a few new suits, worked a bit more in the morning, worked a lot more in the evening, worked a lot more at the weekend, spent less time with my children, spent less time with my wife, lost a couple of stone, made myself ill, because I had to do this task. I'm a lot different to the Mesopotamians, right? When I reflect back on that time in my life, I realised I was chasing the wrong thing. Focus was in the wrong place. I had to prove myself. I had to work hard. There's nothing wrong with working hard, is there? Nothing wrong with that. But for me, it was all wrong. Go back to our story now. And we fast forward 2,000 years and we see Jesus on the cross dying, a sacrifice for our sins. And we read in Colossians that through him, he has reconciled himself to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So in our story of Abraham, we see a God of grace. 
And in Jesus Christ, we see a sacrifice of peace that means that old system, that old way of being right with God has gone. It is no more. It's not what we can do, but what has been done for us. A few years ago, I went with a friend, uh, Dan, to the Lake District. And we were there, we were at Lake Windermere, and we were going to do some water sports. And on one of the days, we decided to go walking. I should say hiking, shouldn't I? Because that sounds a bit better. We were hiking, we were on this hike. And we are going to go up this huge mountain, or was it a hill, I don't really know, but it was a long walk. And when we got to the top, we were confronted with all these images, people putting stones and rocks on top of each other. I kind of looked around, thought this was a bit odd, but they were everywhere, all these stones piled up. At first I thought, we're not sacrificing anything, are we? No. And then I too, I took a stone, put it on one of the other stones. Dan did the same. And as I was thinking about laying there and having a drink and something to eat after a long walk, I thought, it's a marker, right? It must be a marker. It must be saying, I've climbed this, so I'm going to put down my mark. I'm going to put it with someone else. We're laying a marker. In the old world, in Mesopotamia, the markers that people put down in their lives were about sacrifice, never being right. Always something else to do, full of anxiety and worry and concern because they could never be right with their gods. The marker that I want to put down in my life now is a marker of grace and peace, being in relationship with a God that grants me that grace and that gives me that peace. So if you think back to our first question of what are you dependent on? Let's change that question somewhat and say, what are you prepared to have as the markers for your life? And in the words of Paul, the apostle, as he writes at the beginning of his letters, grace and peace be with you. Grace 